We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the subject of the God of all comforts. As we have previously stated, God comforts His people primarily by forgiving our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, and reconciling us to Himself. Judgment is taken away and everlasting life is promised. One of the great metaphors God uses to comfort His people is that of the shepherd and his sheep. He uses this metaphor to express His love and comfort for His people. In all this, the metaphor refers to sheep being scattered, wandering away, and fleeing due to fear. These are pictures of the sins of the Lord's people that cause them to disobey Him and leave Him. Yet God is tenderly disposed to His sheep. He promises to appoint a faithful shepherd, the Lord Jesus, to rescue and protect His flock. Jesus invoked the metaphor to describe saving His people from their sin. Wicked men demanded that Christ denounce poor sinners, but Jesus rather declares His joy over one lost sinner who repents and is rescued by the Good Shepherd. In John 10, Christ suddenly extends this metaphor in a startling way. He promises to save His sheep by dying for them. Normally, the shepherd's life is more valuable than the whole flock, Yet God the Father is pleased with His Son when Jesus lays down His own life to save His sheep. The Father gave the sheep to Christ. The sheep have no say in the matter. They are assigned to Christ by God. But they are changed so that they follow the Good Shepherd. They hear His voice. They obey Him when once they had wandered away from God. That is why Peter teaches that the sheep are healed by the death of Christ, that is, healed from their disobedience and straying away from God. God gave the sheep to His Son because He determined to save them from death. They follow Him with changed hearts because of His kindness toward them. Normally in this world, all sheep ultimately lose their lives, but not so for Christ's sheep. The goodness of our shepherd is that He dies to save us and thereby gives us eternal life so that we can never perish. There is a special pathos in this metaphor, in this death of the shepherd to save his sheep. The night Jesus went to Calvary to die for us, he recalled the promise of olden times that God would smite the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. It was God who smote our Lord Jesus in our place for our sins on the cross. Nowhere is this drama more poignantly expressed than in Isaiah 53. There, the substitution of Jesus in our place to suffer God's wrath against our sins laid upon Jesus is graphically described. There, God uses the metaphor once again to sadly yet gently describe our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. What a gentle, comfortable, and subdued description of our rebellion and disobedience and fleeing from the face of our holy and righteous God. What a muted description of our crimes against Him. These are our lostness, our sin against God. Our own faults have doomed us to destruction. What a subdued description. Our God in pity for us likens our sins to the foolish delinquencies of poor, helpless stupid sheep. But God lays on our Jesus, our Savior, all our transgressions and punishes Him in our place. Some false teachers dispute 
the way in which Christ was made like His people at the Incarnation. They try to use Christ's incarnate humanity to deny our sin nature, our fall in Adam, our original sin, by claiming that if we were so, then Christ must also be fallen and guilty of Adam's sin. And therefore, He could never die as a perfect sacrifice in our place. But there was never any sin in Christ because He was not born in Adam. Adam did not represent Jesus in the sin in the garden. Rather, Christ is the second Adam, born of the Holy Ghost, come to save His people from their doom in Adam. Christ is flesh and blood, God incarnate in human flesh with a human mind and heart, natural desires, but perfectly obedient to God His Father. In Isaiah 53, there is that final astounding turn in the metaphor that pictures for us the critical way in which Jesus is like us in His humanity. Because it is necessary that our Redeemer be made like the ones He will die to save, Isaiah points out this truth that in some way, our Good Shepherd is made like His own sheep. Not that Jesus ever went astray like sheep, or turned to His own way like sheep, or was foolish like sheep, or stubborn like sheep, or helpless like sheep, or driven away by fear like sheep. No, what does Isaiah lament? That our shepherd, our Savior, our substitute, died like a sheep. After God laid all our crimes upon Jesus, it is said that He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so He openeth not His mouth. In Isaiah's telling of our justification, there are two different sheep. The disobedient sheep, we who have gone astray, and the obedient lamb, the Lord Jesus, who died for those sheep who went astray. No wonder John the Baptist cried out when he laid eyes on Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No wonder the saints forever in glory worship and praise the Lamb, for He was slain and has redeemed us to God by His blood. By taking on His role as our Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus comforts His people who have gone astray. Our Good Shepherd was indeed made like His brethren so that He could die in our place and bring eternal life to His sheep who were lost. Now, there is also to be found in Scripture the expression of the need of an intercessor between God and man, one to speak on our behalf unto God, as it were to argue our case before God. You know, we already have an accuser who works full-time. That's Satan, the devil. He loves to accuse us before God and point out all of our sin, as he did try to accuse Job before God. But in his torment and grief, Job sought for such a one as who could stand between him and God and plead his cause and argue with God and negotiate with God and so forth. And we read of this in Job chapter 9. First, after Job describes the crushing power of God as the Creator and describes many instances of His almighty power and Godhead, which places His creatures at a great disadvantage 
We have no power compared to God. We have no voice compared to God. We have no way to answer God in any way. And then at verse 16, Job says this, If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice? For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. This is one thing. Therefore I said it. He destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. And so Job is cast down by his afflictions and by his inability to understand what God has brought to pass upon him and for why, and that there is no apparent way that he can approach unto God to complain, to seek an answer, to seek an explanation, to cry out effectively for relief. And then Job says at verse 27, If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. I'm afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him and that we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then will I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. So here Job longs for someone who can come between him and God, who can lay hold of both of them, who can arbitrate, as it were. Some people translate it arbitrate. Some people translate it as referee. Others say that it's better to be translated as a mediator, one who can commune with both God and man and explain, as it were, them to each other. Although God doesn't need any explaining, does He, of His own creatures. But here's Job's great lament. There is that great imbalance between God and man between the Creator and the creature, between the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal One and the exceedingly weak, ignorant, mortal mankind, between that which is holy and righteous and that which is sinful and degraded and corrupt. And who can bridge these differences? And who can reconcile poor, lost helpless man with almighty, perfect, holy God. And this is the thing that Job is caused to lament as he faces the stark reality of his present condition. Most people go throughout their lives for the most part blissfully ignorant and unaware of these serious and crushing matters. They are in their deadness and in their darkness. But Job 
you see, is spiritually alive, the Spirit has worked in him to cause him to understand and to question these things. Although his answers that he comes to of himself are very, very deficient. And God soon sets him right. But it is in the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, in our humanity for the purpose of dying in our place, it is in all that that a far better solution than Job's becomes manifest. We don't need so much an arbiter or a referee, but rather we need one in a position to intercede with God for us, to represent us before God, one who is perfectly acceptable, well-pleasing to God, as one apostle puts it, to be represented by Jesus Christ the righteous, one whom God recognizes and accepts and embraces as perfect so that He can be listened to and His arguments can be accepted as from God Himself. And that indeed is the situation that we have in the Lord Jesus. He is both man and He is God. So He is perfectly fitted and suited to approach men in His humanity, to approach God in His deity, and to bring the twain together in the intercession of the Lord Jesus. So there is a representative now in Christ of man to God and of God to man. He is a man who can stand before God with a satisfaction for all that God has against us. An offering for sin that satisfies God towards us and takes away the cause of wrath and judgment by God towards lost men. And this is what Christ does. So you see there is in the incarnation of Christ not only the provision of a sacrifice, a sacrificial man to take our place in whose body our sins can be judged rather than our own bodies, but there is also this man who is incarnate God in human flesh who is in a position to be that ideal intercessor between God and man. And the two key passages that introduce our Lord Jesus as not only our sacrifice for our sin, but also as our intercessor unto God are two passages that we dealt with last Lord's Day. In Hebrews 2, Christ as God incarnate in human flesh, made like His brethren whom He will redeem and bring into glory as adopted sons of God, why was He given a body? So that He might have a body in which to bear our sins and to be judged in our place. He was made like the sinful creatures, yet without sin, that God might rain down His wrath on the Lord Jesus' body rather than ours, so that we might be justified. But in that same incarnation, you see, there is also a suitability of the Lord Jesus to be the intercessor, the high priest between God and man. And we see this in Hebrews 2, at verse 14, where the writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that 
through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of an angel, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now this reference to Christ as taking on him the seed of Abraham means that not only was Christ incarnate in our human flesh, but He also took upon Himself the designation of the seed of Abraham, that is, the one in whom Abraham was promised all those years ago, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul works this out in Galatians chapter 3. That the blessing of Abraham comes through the seed of Abraham, by which he means Christ that Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is human. He has taken, has been assigned the position of the seed of Abraham, not just any man, but that promised man that God promised He would redeem His people by one day in the future. So that Christ is taken on human flesh to be a sacrifice, to die in the place of sinful men, but also a particular man, a promised man, that seed of Abraham through which the world would be blessed. The seed of Abraham, the one promised to Abraham who would bless all nations. By taking on human flesh, our sins could be judged in the perfect sinless body of Jesus as a man and provide salvation for sin and wrath from sin and wrath unto us. But there is an efficiency in Christ's incarnation and life. And that's found in verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. So not only is Christ given a body in which to make a sacrifice to save us and to justify us, but he also is given a body that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This declares that Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest. That He knows our weaknesses in the flesh. He knows our temptations in the flesh because He has suffered the same things in His flesh during His life and during His ministry so that we are not represented by someone who is entirely other than ourselves, who is entirely unlike us in any way. You see, getting back to Job's lament, this is better than a mere promise by God that He surely understands us. Although, you remember in the Old Testament, God promised that He understood our frame. He remembered that we were but dust. But this is better, you see. This is God manifest in the flesh, whereby we know that He understands us and knows our weaknesses and has knowledge of our infirmities and our temptations, not the knowledge that God has perfectly of all things, but rather an experiential knowledge in the person and humanity of the Lord Jesus. 
You see what I mean by the efficiency of the incarnation of Christ. Not only is He the human sacrifice for our sin, not only did He offer the sacrifice for our sin before God, but in His humanity, He is the substitute for man in the judgment, and He presents His offering to God for our sin. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, the priests presented the sacrificial animals to God, but they didn't present themselves. They weren't the sacrifices. The animals were. But here in the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus is Himself the sacrifice. And He presents it to God in His position as high priest. He's the high priest who presents His own sacrifice unto God and makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. So you see, it's not enough that Christ should suffer death on our behalf. But the sacrifice must needs be presented to God as the satisfaction for our sins before God, and God has to receive it. And the one who performs that transaction is the very one who made the sacrifice and who is the sacrifice, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. And thereby, He makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. He reconciles us to God. He makes things right between sinners and God. Jesus, by all of this work that He does, takes away the dispute God had against us for our sin. That old account was settled by Christ long ago, as the songwriter puts it. He settled it by being our sacrifice and by being our high priest who offered the sacrifice and presents it unto God as a complete satisfaction to God for our sins. Far better than what Job sought. Christ is better than a referee between God and man. He's better than an arbiter between God and man. He does the needful thing to reconcile us to God, to square our sins with God. He both died in our place to take away our sin, and He completes the reconciliation for our sin before God by presenting that offering unto God and ensuring that God is now satisfied with us for Jesus' sake. And this conjoining of Christ as an offering and Christ as the priest who makes the offering and who pleads the offering sufficiency was foretold, I think, for the first time in Isaiah 53. After Christ has made God's Lamb to die for the disobedient sheep, and after Christ is sacrificed at the hand of God, and after God's wrath pours out against Him because our sin is laid upon Him and He is judged as in our place, you remember that in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant, that is the Lord Jesus, justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. So Christ bearing the sins of His own people on the cross results in our being justified. 
Well, notice Christ is already justified. He's the righteous servant. We're the unrighteous ones. We're the ones that need justifying. And He justifies us by bearing our sins at the sacrifice which God put Him to. He justifies by His sacrifice unto the wrath of God for our sins laid upon Him. But then the reward of Christ from God the Father in the last verse of Isaiah 53 adds to the work of Christ what it is that Christ has done whereby He merits this exaltation at His Father's hand. Therefore will I divide Him a portion with the great and He shall divide the spoil with the strong because He hath poured out His soul in the death. That matches, doesn't it, what Paul says in Philippians 2. He submitted Himself to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name. So here, Isaiah foretells that God will greatly exalt the Lord Jesus because He poured out His soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as guilty of our sin. And people treated Him as guilty for our sin. And He bare the sin of many. He was the substitute. He was the sacrifice offered in our place. But then look at the last. And He made intercession for the transgressors. So there it is that even in Isaiah 53, there is this foretelling of the intercession of Christ. That He would not only offer His body an offering for sin unto God to be judged guilty in our place, whereby He would justify His people because He bears their iniquity, but He would also be raised again, be exalted again because He had died to save His people and because He made intercession for the transgressors. He spoke up on our behalf. He pled our cause in His own very body, you see. The work isn't done until the Lord Jesus intercedes for His people. And there is always this remembrance that Christ always gets what He asks for when He prays to His Father according to His Father's will. And that the Father never denies the Son. Why is that? Because the Son always prays according to the will of His Father. And so everyone who Christ died for, He intercedes for on behalf of the sacrifice that He made for them. And it is impossible that Christ's intercession should be a failure for any one of His people whom He died to save. He made intercession for the transgressors. He presents and argues the perfection of His offering unto God on behalf of His sinful people. He is both high priest presenting the offering to God and He is Himself that offering for our sins. Who is more qualified to represent as perfect and sufficient a sacrifice to God as is His own dear Son who made that offering to begin with? You know, a priest had the duty to offer a sacrifice and the rule was it had to be perfect. It had to be without spot, without blemish. But you know, the priest couldn't know everything. The priest couldn't see 
the insides of that poor beast. He could only do a ceremonial examination, you see. But our Lord Jesus can offer up a perfect and sufficient sacrifice to God because He is the sacrifice and He knows Himself as God and as man. And He is aware and assured of the fact that His sacrifice is perfect. In fact, it's the only sacrifice that can really take away sin, as Hebrews chapter 10 describes to us. So therefore, He's a better high priest than the high priests of the Old Testament, not only because He offers a better sacrifice, but because He knowingly offers a perfect sacrifice which is acceptable to God. The Father saw the travail of Christ's soul at Calvary, the Scriptures tell us, and was satisfied. And therefore, it justified His people. And Christ presses that satisfaction before God on our behalf as our intercessor, our great high priest. He argues the sufficiency of the sacrifice that He made that His Father put Him to as the basis for our redemption, for our justification. Now, you know, we see the beginning of Christ's intercessory work the night He was betrayed. We read it earlier this morning in Luke chapter 22 at verse 31. After He had instituted the Lord's table, which pictured the offering He was about to make, and described how the blood would be shed for the remission of the sins of His people. And then His disciples got into a dispute about who was going to be the greatest. In the face of that, in the face of that solemn announcement by Christ, they were squabbling over their own little position. And He warned them gently against doing such things. And He promised them seats in the kingdom, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, And then you remember that Jesus then foretells Peter's denial. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You see, here is the beginning of what we might call Christ's intercession public intercession for His people. That He prays for Peter's faith that it would not fail under the assaults of the devil and under the trouble that Peter would go through. Nothing like the trouble that the Lord Jesus was about to go through. But you see, to us, the trouble we go through, we think it's the worst when really what Jesus went through was far worse, wasn't it? And yet Jesus prays for Peter that his faith would not fail. And what Jesus prays for, Jesus gets. The faith that Peter had was the gift of God to begin with. Who could shake it if God gave it to him? And if God sustained him in it? And so the Lord Jesus prays for Peter. He makes intercession for him that he will not be destroyed by his own sinful flesh and his fear and the attacks of the devil against him. Sure enough, Peter was sustained, was he not, through the ordeal. And his faith was strong. And afterwards, he mightily proclaimed the death of the Lord Jesus as the only way that we could be saved. 
the promise of Isaiah 53 that Messiah would not only die like the Lamb of God for the sinful sheep, but that He would actually justify them because God would be satisfied with His offering and that He would go far further in being the one who made intercession for His people. He spoke up for His people. You and I would be the kind of people who would say, well, I'm glad that's over with. I've done my part. I've done my part. You see, but Christ, in that sense of intercession, He's never done His part. He ever pleads for us. He always represents the fragrance of His offering for our sin before the throne of grace. In fact, we know from Romans chapter 8 that Christ is seated at the right hand of God as the one who was condemned instead of us and that He's there to make intercession for us. Now one final observation. At the cross, Jesus offered Himself like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shears is dumb. He died like a quiet lamb for us. At Calvary, that's what Isaiah reckons with. But now Jesus speaks strongly for His people. He intercedes for us. He is no longer silent because the sacrifice is done. He advocates that sacrifice on behalf of His people as our great intercessor. And this should be a comfort to us. Not only do we know that Christ died to save us, but we also know that Christ is active in His representation of our interests before the throne of heaven. He intercedes for us. Charles Wesley, I think, put the cries of Jesus for us very well in the hymn that we sing often. Uh, Listen to these words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne. My surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our sins and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for Me. Forgive Him. O forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears Him pray. His dear anointed one, He cannot turn away the presence of His Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh and Father, Abba, Father, cry. The wounds of Christ cry out and plead for the saving of Christ's loved ones. And His voice intercedes on our behalf, presenting His sacrifice, which has justified His people because He died 
in our place to redeem us. And around the Lord's table, we celebrate that sacrifice which Christ made and which He pleads for us today. And it is the great comfort of God towards us that we have not only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus dying for our sins, but we also have the perfect intercession of our great high priest who presents His perfect offering before the throne of God, forever pleading our cause. We are declared righteous for Jesus' sake and clothed in His righteousness when we had none ourselves to commend us. And so Job knows now that his Redeemer would perform all of those needful duties and even better than he ever imagined that he would. That there is a great Redeemer. There is the Lord Jesus. God manifests in the flesh who made a perfect sacrifice and who pleads and intercedes perfectly before God for His people. So let's remember the body and blood of Christ as we partake of this feast, as we designate this bread to represent the body of Christ broken for us and this cup to represent the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. Let's give thanks for the bread first. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You designated Your dear Son to be made like His brethren after the flesh, to bear our sins in His own body on the tree, and to be crucified cruelly on the cross in our place, and that You observed it and approved of it and received it and accepted it as entirely sufficient for the redeeming of Your people. And we thank You that on top of that, the Lord Jesus is actively interceding for us and pleading His blood on our behalf so that it might be understood that we are represented by the God-man in the glory forever. And He'll never abandon us. and He'll never lose a single one of us. We thank You that He left us this bread to remind us of the body that He gave up to be broken on the cross for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood poured out to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death till He comes. Let's stand and sing number 164 in the black book. O Lord, by Thee invited, we gather in Thy name. Each willing guest delighted Thy presence here to claim. In time of deepest sadness, Lord Jesus, Thou didst prove Thy heart could still find gladness in pouring forth its love. Number 164.